This is a podcast, slidecast for the AP European History students at Bozeman High School. My name is Dave Butt. Students, this podcast, slidecast, is going to cover uh, a topic of your book, a topic that your book doesn't cover quite in the detail that I really wanted to. It's known as a commercial revolution. Uh, this happens from about 1500 to about 1700. So really, about the time period that we've been dealing with for the last couple of weeks and the time period that we will be dealing with for the next couple of weeks um, is what this sort of subject is going to cover. So let's go ahead and take a look at the big essential questions uh, that are associated with the commercial revolution. So one of the things you want to be looking at is what are the political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations of modern era? How do those forces interact? And how are nation states formed and developed? Uh, if you can start to think about what those questions are um, and what the answers to those questions might be, uh, keep that in mind as you listen to this podcast, slidecast. So moving right along, the commercial revolution, what you got to remember is it, it, basically what it is is just a growth in the amount of goods that are sold and a growth in the um, prices that are there as well. Uh, so what are the causes of the commercial revolution? Um, the roots of the commercial revolution are going to come from this Hanseatic League that you can see on the right-hand side of your slide here. Uh, basically, the Hanseatic League is, um, it was formed in the Middle Ages, and it is um, a, a trade guild almost from the, inside the Northern Europe. Uh, they almost have a monopoly on trade inside of Northern Europe, but that is one of the major sort of background issues. Um, it's a mercantile association with numerous cities and towns, and you can see those cities and towns on the slide cast um, all across Northern Europe, all across the Baltic Sea. Uh, that is part of, that is one of the major causes for this commercial revolution. Um, you're also going to see a massive population growth inside of Europe between 1500 and 1700. Um, you're going to see the population go from about 70 million in 1500 all the way up to about 90 million in 1600. Um, and thus more consumers are existed and thus you have more uh, market to actually sell your goods. And you should be able to then sell more of your goods theoretically. You're also going to get a thing called the price revolution along with this. Um, that's going to accompany the, the, the commercial revolution. The price revolution uh, really is just a long, slow upward trend in prices. Um, you're going to see increased food prices, increase the volume of money, and also the influx of gold and silver from the New World, which we'll talk about uh, in the next slide cast. Um, but this gold and silver from the New World is going to really be able to um, force up price quite a bit. And of course, if you have gold and silver now, and there's, a, there's an excess of gold and silver, you're going to see a, uh, an increase in the amount of stuff that you could possibly buy, uh, just in general. Uh, increased prices also meant that, that you're going to see a supply of goods also is going to increase um, because obviously if you are a farmer making a um, if you're a farmer making anything at this point in time cloth clothing whatever it might be you're operating inside of the putting out system that we'll talk about in a little while um, but if you're operating under that system you see an increase in the prices you're obviously going to have more of an incentive to actually make more product and hopefully try and sell them which you should be able to sell them with that with the growth of the population. Um, you're also going to see states are going to be emerging as empires. Um, they're going to seek to increase their economic power, so they're going to encourage trade and commercial revolution throughout Europe. Um, you're also going to see the rise of capitalism, this idea of laissez-faire, which we'll talk in depth about in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but I want to make sure you guys understand sort of this commercial revolution is taking place right now and how it is a part of European society in the early modern period. Um, Part of this capitalism that you're going to see is the middle class bourgeoisie are going to lead the way inside of this middle class. Uh, these guys are going to be the rising merchant class that we've talked about quite a few times. Um, they're they're going to invest their own money uh, in their own businesses or other business ventures, which is really going to help increase the amount of money inside of the 
inside of all of the European economy, which helps to obviously lubricate the economy. So let's take a look at some of the features of this. You know, the first thing we want to mention is banking. It's not only um, banking itself is going to be a massive influence on the commercial revolution, being able to bank, being able to get money, being able to have money flow fairly easily across across hands is going to be a massive uh, a massive impact on the um, development of the commercial revolution. You're going to get, we've mentioned the Fugger family in Germany uh, and then the Medici's inside of Italy. These are the massive banking, you know, just two of the massive banking families inside of Europe, but um, a good indication of basically having excess money to, found, um, to fund countless economic activities, both of these, both of these families will. Um, they are the leading bankers in Europe. Uh, and they're going to have, they're basically going to have money that they can just sort of give into projects that um, could potentially make them more money. This banking is going to develop in a number of towns, um, Antwerp being sort of the middle town. Remember, Florence would have been the town inside the Renaissance where the Medici's are in control. Um, as the Renaissance moves north, you're going to see banking, the structure of banking itself, move to Antwerp. Um, you can see Antwerp on the right-hand map at the top near uh, well, right at the top near, right near the northern part of Belgium. Um, the reason that Antwerp is going to develop is because, or develop into a commercial center in the 16th century, is because it is um, fairly close. It's, it's right on a river. It's got a fairly good port, uh, and also it's got a fairly stable um, governmental structure around it. Um, eventually, though, Amsterdam is going to become the financial center of the 1700s, uh, 1700s, because uh, after the successful Dutch revolt. Uh, against Spain, which we'll talk about, that's really going to be the the reason that um, Amsterdam itself is going to develop into a much much stronger banking center. Um, what else we're going to see out of this? The, what some of the other features we're going to see is that you're going to get chartered companies. Um, this is basically state-provided monopolies in certain areas, i.e., the British East India Company and then the Dutch East India Company. These companies are massive companies. Um, basically, they become, in effect, a state within a state. Large naval fleets to protect their own ships. Um, large merchant marines. These people have men, armies, private armies, all there to protect their own investments. Um, both the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company are become massive, massive companies um, that manage to protect their own interests overseas uh, because they're because basically they operate as states within the states. Think about. Um, companies that are probably more powerful than than other states, than states that they might operate in, Coca-Cola, um, IBM, or uh, Microsoft. You know, these are powerful, powerful countries, uh, or powerful, powerful uh, companies. Granted, they don't have military fleets, but you can imagine if they did, uh, what it might be like. But the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, um, we'll talk more about sort of their influence on politics. But remember, this is where they become. Uh, this is how they manage to become effective. If you have goods coming across the seas uh, from the from New World colonies or in colonies inside of Asia, um, you need a way to protect those, and that's where you get these chartered companies, uh, and that's why you have a, an impact, uh, and that's why you're going to get the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company. Joint uh, joint stock companies are also going to come into into play here. What this is is basically you're going to have a number of investors going to pool their resources for a common purpose. Um, this is sort of the forerunner of the corporation. We have corporations today where everyone owns a piece of the stock, um, but it's a really good example of capitalism, um, one of the early prime examples of capitalism, joint stock companies. Basically, if you think about it, 
uh, before, if you had a business that only you could provide money for, uh, the chances for you to expand that is going to be very, very small because any money that you put in uh, is going to be your own. So if it if it fails, if that company fails, then you lose all your money. However, these joint stock companies um, they spread the they spread the the risk, uh, but also the the potential wealth. People are willing to put up a small portion of their money if they're only going to lose a small portion of their money. Um, so you get a whole bunch of people together that will put up a small portion of their money, and then you all of a sudden now have a uh, joint stock company because you have a lot of investors willing to put up a small portion of their money and then therefore you have a large pool of money you can actually do something with it. Um, we'll talk about sort of the, uh, the joint stock companies here in a bit. You're also going to see stock markets are going to emerge in this. Um, the Burgess House in Antwerp is going to be the first um, and this is going to be where investors finance a company by purchasing shares of stock um, and obviously as the value of the company grew so did the stock and thus the investors profit. So this is another way for companies to sort of make money uh, and be able to, you know, another way for people to invest money in certain corporations and be able to make money in those corporations, um, which is really going to help sort of bring about the, the entire banking movement or help to bring about this entire commercial revolution. Um, some of the other features that you want to think about, you're also going to see the first enclosure movements inside of England. And this is going to be where people are going to start to take a risk on their land, basically, and they're going to want some sort of way to make sure that they can uh, get an improvement upon that land. So here, the enclosure movements, prior to the enclosure movements, you're going to see um, basically open land to where everybody uh, can use that land for any kind of purposes that they might need. Um, the wealthy landowners, though, in England are going to start to enclose their lands to improve sheep herding. Uh, and thus the supply of wool for the production of textiles. Uh, this is also where you're going to see kind of a, an increase in the production of textiles. The enclosure movement helps wealthy landowners uh, determine and improve their, their, their stock of their sheep, basically. Um, they can't do that unless they can control how the land is being used and who's getting to use the land. Prior to the enclosure movements inside of England, anybody could use any parcel of land as long as it was the idea of common land. Um, but you're going to see as the enclosure movement sort of starts to begin, wealthy landowners are going to be using the land for their own purposes uh, in hopes of improving their wool supply and thus their their monetary value for their wool. Um, the putting out system, as it's called here, the putting out industry is going to emerge. We'll talk a little bit more the, the, about the putting out industry as it comes into being, but um, this is going to emerge in the countryside for the production of cloth. And what that basically is, is that some farmers, because they're going to be displaced, remember the, the, the wealthy landowners inside of England are enclosing all of this land to try and improve their own stock, their own supply of wool. Some of the, some of the more poor, or some of the poorer farmers inside of England are going to be displaced by this enclosure wood. They're not going to have anywhere to go. They're not going to have anywhere to actually raise their sheep. And to help of sort of supplementing their income, they're going to start to produce their own cloth. And that's where you're going to get their putting out industry is going to emerge. Um, they're going to put out their own product basically to help try and offset the, the, the loss of the land that they can use for their sheep herding. Um, so the enclosure movement and the putting out industry, uh, the, the fact that you're going to see a, a decrease in the amount of land accessible to the poor farmers is going to lead them to actually come back in and start to produce cloth and other goods out of their own home for market to sell. Um, the new industries you're going to see rise out of here 
uh, cloth production, mining, printing, book trade, shipbuilding, cannons, and muskets. Um, these are all the new industries that you're going to see coming rising out of the commercial revolution. Uh, and it's pretty much what you would, in intuition, intu intuitionally speaking, um, cloth production, obviously we talked about the, the putting out system. Uh, enclosure movements are trying to increase the, the amount of wool for the textiles industry. So you can see cloth industry is going to be a new industry. Mining to be able to um, produce some metals uh, for that. Printing, we've mentioned the idea of printing being becoming a lot more accessible to the common man. Um, book trades as well. It's no longer books are no longer a status symbol really. They're 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 used for uh, educational purposes. Um, Shipbuilding. We talked about the Dutch, the the British and Dutch East India Company. You can imagine that there's going to be massive merchant marines being built at this point in time. Um, and then cannons and muskets. Obviously, it, uh, if you're sending ships out to sort of colonize the uh, or to try and trade and take over as much land as possible, you're going to have to have some sort of way to protect them. And hence the rise of cannons and musket industries as well. New consumer goods. When these cannons, muskets, and ships go out into the world, what are they going to find? Well, we'll talk about more of that in, when we talk about the exploration. But the one thing you must remember is that sugar, 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 sugar. Remember nothing else, but remember sugar. Um, it's going to be the most productive and the most uh, influential sort of new product to come out of this commercial revolution. Um, it's going to lead to an enormous slave trade in the Atlantic, which we'll talk about. Uh, but also you're going to see rice and tea as well being be rather important new consumer goods. But sugar is definitely the most important consumer good. Um, mercantilism is also going to develop. Now what this is, mercantilism is kind of a hard thing to define. It's a, you know, this, the picture on the right-hand side here shows sort of a mercantilist society, if you will, um, where you have a lot of ships, a lot of trade. Um, the goal underneath mercantilism is that nations are going to seek self-sufficient economy. Basically it means that there's only a limited amount of gold, uh, there's only a limited amount of money in the world and if you want to be a strong nation, under the theory of mercantilism, if you want to be a strong nation, it is your duty to try and collect as much gold as possible. Um, so what you need for that, the way to, the, the strategy to reach the gold, or to reach the goal of being self-sufficient, is to create a favorable balance of trade. Or one, uh, so basically what you're, what you're trying to do with the favorite balance of trade is that you're going to export far more than you're going to import. So whatever goods you're making, whatever it is you're going to be exporting, you always want to export more than you import. Um, so because if you import, then you give your gold to somebody else. But if you, uh, if you export, then you collect somebody else's gold. And mercantilists are going to believe that there is, again, only a, only a small supply or there's a limited supply of gold um, inside of the entire world and if you want to be a strong strong country it is your responsibility to try and get as much gold and silver as possible from all across this uh, from all across the world uh, this is also known as bullionism and again the country should acquire as much gold and silver as possible um, and to do that a favorable balance of trade is going to be necessary to keep the gold supply from flowing into a competing country so you can imagine how uh, this might lead to some sort of conflict amongst countries, right? I mean, if you're the, if you, if there's two countries that believe there's only a certain amount of gold in the world, each of those countries is going to try and get the other country's gold. Um, so hopefully you can understand how that sort of leads into a potential conflict. So mercantilism develops inside the, is going to develop inside the 17th century. It's going to be the driving force, the driving economic policy um, behind all the commercial revolution and behind a lot of the absolute monarchs that we're going to see. Um, mercantilism will be a major sort of economic policy throughout the entire um, 16th and 17th centuries.
So the significance. Um, you're going to see a slow transition from of Europe uh, from a society of rule to more developed um, with emergence of towns. Prior to the commercial revolutions, you're going to see uh, a town, lots of woods, lots of woods, lots of woods, lots of woods, town, lots of woods, lots of woods, lots of woods, lots of woods, town. Um, it's tough to trade across woods that you don't trust, that there could be thieves, it could be robbers. Uh, so you're going to see, as a result of this, as the significance of this commercial revolution is that there's going to be a transition in European society um, from this rural, isolated society to one that's more developed and one that's more connected across the oceans, across trade routes. Um, and you're going to see the emergence of several significant towns across the Europe. Um, and you're going to see, again, this idea that people are going to be a lot more connected and as opposed to being more isolated as they were inside the Middle Ages. Many serfs uh, are going to improve their social position as well, and thanks to this commercial revolution. I mean, you can imagine that if you are a poor uh, serf or poor peasant, if you will, inside of England, and now all of a sudden you can produce wool and sell it for profit, you can theoretically improve your status in society because you'll be able to get a little bit more, um, a little bit more money inside your pocket. So. Not only do you see a transition from rural to more urban, not, not urbanization as we would know it today, but certainly more connection um, across isolated areas, but you're also going to see an improvement in the lives of everyday uh, Europeans. You're also going to see the emergence of very powerful nation states, um, because if you have an increase in wealth, you can tax that wealth, and this is where you're going to start to see the rise of really, really strong central monarchs. Um, this is where absolutism is going to sort of take root as well. Uh, once you have more and more power, or once you have more and more wealth in a society, you can tax that wealth and therefore um, become much, much uh, stronger as a nation. So you can start to have large standing armies. You can start to uh, be able to do what you need to do to increase your own power. It's also going to bring about an age of exploration. As competing, a, uh, competing nations seek to create new empires overseas, this idea of mercantilism, where there's only a certain amount of gold in the world, you as a country need to get that gold. So that's where you're going to see this sort of age of exploration and this competition amongst nation states to create new overseas empires. Um, so the price revolution. Uh, talk a little bit about the price revolution as a sort of a, a significance of the commercial revolution. Um, the, the, the price revolution, basically in the 16th century, you're going to see prices just rising up gradually. Uh, you're going to see just, a, you know, there's been theories as to why it rises up as to, you know, what really causes it, whether or not it's the, um, the increase of supply, the increase of demand, uh, whatever it might be. Um, it, it, they rise up gradually and eventually you're going to get people where they can get a lot more money for the goods that they were producing for a lot less money for before. Um, the increase, in, like I said, the increase in population demand uh, thereby is going to increase prices because obviously there's more people that want your product, you can charge more for it. You're also going to see a massive influx of gold and silver from the New World um, is one of the factors, but it's not the major factor of this price revolution. Uh, it is one of the factors, though, that like this gold and silver coming into the New World is going to be a lot more uh, economic uh, potential for economic trade inside of the gold and silver coming into the New World. This is also going to be um, because one of the one of the reasons for inflation, um, but inflation itself, you can imagine if this influx of gold and silver coming in from the new world, all of a sudden now you have a lot more gold and silver, which makes anything, uh, you know, simple economics. If you have more of anything, the the less valuable one more of that thing becomes. And so, if you have a little bit more gold, even if you have a whole lot to begin with, it doesn't, you know, 
it loses its value as you get more and more of it. Um, but inflation itself is going to stimulate production as producers can get more for their goods. Um, so again, this idea that if they can, um, if they you know the inflation, the the new prices of everything, as everything's going up, you can get more money for the goods that you're producing. So you're going to get more production. Um, the bourgeoisie is going to acquire much of their wealth from trading and manufacturing, and their social and political status is going to be increased. Remember, we talked about the new merchant class sort of rising out of this, and it's because of this uh, that this bourgeoisie uh, can produce and trade and sell their goods uh, for quite a bit more profit, and they're going to get a lot more power out of that, a lot more political and social status. Um, but the bourgeoisie aren't the only people that are going to um, going to be benefit benefiting from this. You're also going to see um, you're also going to see peasant farmers who are going to benefit from the surplus of yields, and they're going to be able to turn um, all their crops into cash. Uh, the nobility, however, um, is going to lose a little bit of their power because if you remember, the nobility is fixed on rents, right? They're fixed on the land rents that they're charging for feudal, basically from from the Middle Ages underneath the feudal system. Um, they're going to they're going to suffer a, a diminished standard of living during the inflationary economy. So it's, it's important to remember that you're going to see a rise in the merchant class because they can trade and they can get the goods that they need to get and they can um, make money off the goods that they're trading. But the nobility, their, their income is pretty much fixed. Um, they're not going to get a lot of money. They're going to still have power, but the money itself, maybe not so much. Um, this political and economic significance of the bourgeoisie, which I just mentioned, uh, is really going to be first evident in the Italian states during the Renaissance. Um, it's going to become the most powerful class in the Netherlands. Uh, in France, it's going to grow, the bourgeoisie is going to grow into a political power at the expense of the nobility. So you get the shift in between the nobility and the uh, bourgeoisie. Um, and really, they're going to, and really, the, the bourgeoisie in England is going to excurt, uh, exert its increased influence in English politics as well. So the bourgeoisie, this rising middle class, which we mentioned quite a few times in class already, um, just remember that it is starting to influence the politics of the day. It's starting to impact, impact the social uh, the social stance of the day. And overall, you're going to see um, you're going to see uh, overall you're going to see an increase in the standard of living, especially among the uh, the middle classes as well. Like you're going to see people who can afford more stuff basically, and they will they will enjoy more stuff. So that is the commercial revolution, taking a look at, again, some of these essential questions. How are political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations of modern Europe? And how do those forces interact? So we can talk about the intellectual or the, the economic um, foundations of modern Europe, where you see the price revolution and the commercial revolution being influential in the growth of power nation-states, um, which leads into the set question number two, how are nation-states formed and developed? Again, you have this rise of economic power inside the middle class. They're going to exert more of their influence. That economic power comes from this idea of the commercial revolution and the price revolutions. Um, and those forces, obviously, uh, you know, the political, social, economic, and intellectual foundations, how do they interact? Again, economics going to determine what sort of, um, what's how the politics of the day are going to play out. So that is the commercial revolution. Uh, thank you for your time. Hope to see you again.